Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Afternoon, folks. I hope you all had a really lovely Christmas, and um, I'm sure some of you will get a chance to enjoy the fireworks tonight that will be out there. In any case, um, together again, looking at God's Word, if you're... um, Looking for a for a title or whatever to this passage, this message, it's uh, I'm just calling it "From Death to Life in Christ." If you could do me one favor before we start out in this, I'd like to do go through an introductory passage that I think will be very helpful in clarifying um, the message itself. If you could turn to Ezekiel chapter 37 in the Old Testament, I just want to read through verses one to ten. That's Ezekiel. 37, verses 1 to 10. Okay. Ezekiel speaking. um, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very, very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin. And put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, O son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is the word of the Lord. Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. 
Now, if you drive along a highway, say a central highway in Western Australia, for any period of time, you become immediately aware of the vast array of kangaroos who have uh, died from collisions with vehicles and uh, road trains in particular. It's actually a very sorrowful sight. Driving long distances in the outback and seeing the white bones littering the roadside. And no one amongst us would ever believe that these bones could come to life again. In fact, it's very difficult even to recognize the type of animal that died. So in the passage that we just read in Ezekiel, he provided the correct answer, didn't he? Who can bring dead bones to life? Oh Lord, you know. God is the only one who can know because he is all-knowing. And he's the only one who can bring dead bones to life because he is all-powerful. So the passage that we're examining today in Ephesians 2 is about that. It's about bringing the dead to life, which can only be accomplished by the Lord. The army of dead bones that came to life, like Lazarus, being raised from the tomb, would eventually die again and return to dust. But the resurrection life provided by the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal, guaranteed to those who love and serve him. So let's look at the condition of the human soul and discover what the life-giving power of the Savior accomplishes in them who trust in him. By way of background, we know the condition of the city of Ephesus in the first century AD, don't we? Idol worship, witchcraft, Judaic mysticism, the emperor cult, those were the religions of the day. And in this setting, the fledgling church was growing, and the apostle Paul had invested two years of his life in her. And so Paul has written this wonderful letter to the Christians in Ephesus to encourage them and to ensure they are able to stand firm in the faith. The opening chapters of Ephesians was about Paul's prayer for this church, that they might know their salvation, that might know their hope, and they might know their inheritance in Christ Jesus. Lastly, we've discovered that God's method for establishing his kingdom on the earth is not based on star performance. We're not waiting for the next evangelist, the next crusade or new fire to see our homes, our neighborhoods, our cities, our workplaces, schools, and our nation transformed. God is going to build his kingdom through his church, through you and I, together. It's what we do collectively in unity of the faith to advance the gospel that counts. And the heart of evangelism, folks, is this. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. John 13, verse 35. If we're unable to live in unity, how will the world see Jesus in us? So let us proceed to read and understand where God has brought us from and where he is taking us to in these verses from Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have that open there somewhere, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 here. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, some people believe that you and I play a role, we play a part in our own salvation. <clears throat> that this is a cooperative work between each of us and the Lord. However, we've seen from Ephesians 1 verse 5 that God has elected us, hasn't he? He's predestined us to salvation, chosen us. And he did this from before the foundation of the world, before anything was created. And like the song we sang said, before he cast the stars into the heavens. This means that he chose us, he called us, and he saved us. Further, he is sanctifying us, which means he's setting us apart for good works in him. And ultimately, he will glorify us when we are serving him forever in heaven. Salvation is wholly and completely a work of God. We played no part in it. And these opening verses in Ephesians 2 tell us why. When the Bible says that we're dead in trespasses and sins, folks, does it mean that sin makes us sick? Does it mean that simply that sin is simply an injury and the right ointment or the right pill will make us well? The answer is an emphatic no. Sin doesn't make us sick. It makes us dead. We are without life, just like those dry bones described in Ezekiel. When Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, verses 38 to 44, there was no question that Lazarus was dead. When Jesus commanded them to remove the stone sealing the crypt, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. This man was physically dead, and his body and his brain in particular was seriously decomposed. So when this passage tells us that we're dead in trespasses and sins, it means exactly what it says. Without Christ, we are spiritually dead. We're like zombies, walking dead men and women. We have physical life. We can breathe. We can talk. We can eat. But our relationship with God is gone because sin has cut us off from his life and the vital relationship we must have necessary for eternal life. Not only are we spiritual zombies, but we're also being led by someone. The verse says we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience the prince of the power of the air. Folks, this can be no one other than Satan and demonic powers. And in strongest possible terms, it says that apart from Christ, this spirit is at work in everyone. What a terrible prison. What terrible enslavement. Is it any wonder that the world around us is in the condition that we see, we hear, and we feel? How can it be otherwise if people are actively obeying satanic powers and the sin also that rules in their own hearts? 
Paul tells us that this is what you and I once were. And he describes the actions that proceed from dead hearts. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This description brings to mind the Tower of Babel, when sinful men appropriated godhood for themselves. God describes men in their sinful state. It says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Genesis 11, verse 6. We can also see the rebellious condition of man so clearly described in Romans 1, verse 18, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Sinners suppress God's truth in his word. They hold it back. They oppose it. It makes no entrance into their hearts. And apart from Christ, we are the walking dead. He can give us true spiritual life. He and he alone. Think about this. In order to have spiritual life and thus believe, we must be alive. It is impossible for the spiritually dead to respond to Christ or to believe in him. That faculty is impossible because the law of death that rules in us. Thus, God must first make us alive to enable us to believe. But we get the order backwards, don't we? We think belief in Christ precedes life in him, when in fact, God who chose us from the foundation of the world must first give us spiritual life before we can believe in him. Thus the salvation work of perfect grace, God's unmerited favor bestowed upon unworthy people according to the counsel of his own will. He raises from dead to life. Verses 4 to 8. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, the immeasurable mercy of God! How unfathomable the expression of his love when he provided for unworthy sinners by the sacrifice of the Holy Savior who bled and died on Calvary's tree. In September last year, I was depressed and agitated because of sin in my own life. I couldn't sleep. So I went into the lounge uh, to listen to some hymns on YouTube through the television. And as I was seeking God for peace and understanding, I suddenly became aware of his presence and his love. I was surrounded by this, this warmth. And in the midst of this, I felt as though I were caught up in a river. But it was a river of my own sin. 
I saw this incredible flood of all the wicked thoughts and deeds of my life that flowed out from my heart. It was a picture of horror. To sense that God's presence was with me, but I was seeing what an evil heart I had. And in awe and dread, these quiet words entered my heart. I have paid for and forgiven all of this. Slowly his presence faded, but God's deep, deep love remained. I was his, and his death on the cross truly paid for every evil thought and act, past, present, and future. This is truly God's grace, isn't it? To know that he reaches down to each of us sinners in his love and says, I forgive you, go and sin no more. John 8, verse 11. When we were dead in trespasses and sin, God made us alive. The difference between our condition and Lazarus is that while Lazarus was raised physically from the dead, we, however, have been raised from spiritual death to everlasting life. Lazarus would eventually die again, and only God would determine if Lazarus would be granted eternal life. God knew the condition of my heart before he saved me. God knows every evil thought and deed of my past, my present, and my future. No good works or intentions persuaded him I was somehow worthy of saving for his purposes. Out of the mystery of his own purposes, his own will, he chooses whom he chooses, and others he passes over. Romans 9, verses 18 to 23. <clears throat> Thus, we have nothing to be proud of, do we? We, the undeserving, have received reward without measure, all of the cost of Christ's death on our behalf. Consider the riches of the undeserved reward we've received in Christ. It says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Where is Jesus right now? Luke 22, verses 66 to 69 says this, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and scribes. And they led him, Jesus, away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And in Acts verse eight fifty, uh, chapter eight verse fifty six, the martyr Stephen told his accusers, "Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." Two other references are Revelation three verse twenty one and Revelation twelve verse five. Jesus, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, is seated in heaven, ruling and reigning with God the Father. That's where he is. 
And here in Ephesians, Paul tells us that as new creatures in Christ, we are positionally seated together with him. Isn't this evidence of how precious we are to him? Aren't we his treasure? Isn't this why he died and rose from the dead? Shouldn't this persuade us that nothing can take him, take us from his hand? How can we do anything other than bow down and worship before him? Who other than he is worthy of our praise, our adoration, and our service? What sins are we prepared to give up to better serve him here and now? Verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Of verse 8, the Amplified Bible says this, For it is by grace God's remarkable compassion and favor drawing you to Christ that you have been saved, actually delivered from judgment and given eternal life through faith. And this salvation is not of yourself, not through your own effort, but it is the undeserved, gracious gift of God. One of the arguments against, used against the Reformed faith is the idea of free will. Men, despite being sinners, are said to have free will and thus be able to choose God's gift of life in Jesus Christ or to reject it. However, as we've discovered, man is dead in trespasses and sins. Thus the question begs, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and through whom all of us inherited this sin nature, how much of our original parents actually died? Did they die spiritually? Yes. They were cast from God's presence in the garden into a world that produced weeds and thorns and thistles. Their intimate relationship with the Creator was severed. They were no longer walking with Him in the trees in the cool of the afternoon. Did they die physically? Well, not immediately, but eventually, eventually and inevitably. For dust you are, and unto dust you shall return, was part of the curse placed upon them. So as a consequence of choosing to disobey God, that they might become gods themselves, what about their hearts? Did their hearts die? The heart of man, folks, in biblical terms, is not the organ that pumps blood around the body, but it's the mind, the will, and the emotions of each of us. It's the center of our moral government. Emphatically, yes. Death, or sin brought death to everything. Every aspect of the created order, every atom in the universe. If so, then man's will is dead as well because our will is central to our moral government. And as many great theologians of the past have stated, man is completely free to sin. The will of the unregenerate person is free only in the sense to choose sin. 
Like all other aspects of man's moral nature, the human's will is dead and tends only toward rebellion against God. The sinful state is man's natural element. To put it bluntly, birds fly, fish swim, sinners sin. Only God through Christ can free our wills. He does it through his effectual call. He chooses us. He calls us. He saves us. And he sets us apart for his use and then fills us with his precious Holy Spirit. And then we are made fit for the master's use. 2 Timothy 2.21 Folks, this takes God's grace to accomplish this. While grace is his unmerited favor towards us in his kindness, grace is actually a power. Get this. Grace is actually a power that not only saves us from sin, but empowers us to keep from sinning. It lifts our vision to see him on the throne and understand that when he looks at us, he sees us through the atonement of Jesus and we are clothed in robes of righteousness. Revelation 7, verse 9. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a wonderful plan for each of our lives, doesn't he? He who has known us before we were created in our mother's womb knows us intimately. All of our gifts, all of our weaknesses, all of our faults, and all of our potential for his kingdom. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all of the mistakes you and I are going to make. And best of all, he has determined the ultimate victory of his kingdom on the earth. And each of us together play a vital role in that work. This should give you and I great confidence to move forward, humbly, prayerfully, submissively, immersed in his word, reliant upon our relationship with the Holy Spirit, and walking in love one with another. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We can take risks for his sake. The word witness in the Bible comes from the Greek word martyria, from which you and I get the word martyr. Are you prepared to witness and be a witness for the Lord Jesus? To do so requires martyrdom. We must die to our own self-interest to declare him before an unbelieving world. Three points of application and we'll close. First of all, we are dead, spirit, soul, and body because of sin. However, God in love and mercy, because of the Son's sacrifice on our behalf, gave us new life in him and raised us up together, seating us in the heavenlies with our Savior Jesus. This was wholly and completely a work of God in which you and I played no part whatsoever. This is the nature of grace. God's unmerited, unearned, and particular favor. Ephesians 1, 3-8, and 2, verses 8-9. to Secondly, as a result, we're called to be witnesses for Christ in word and deed. 
Faith is accomplished and accompanied and made visible by works. During the China Inland Mission in the late 19th century, uh, the characteristics in China at that, at that time, northern China in particular, were that thousands, millions were addicted to opium. Okay, it was rife among the population. So the China Inland Mission, which started in the late 19th century, the Chinese Christians that were a part of that developed refuges to help the opium addicts overcome their addiction. And it was there in those refuges that those who were enslaved to the drug came to meet their Savior. And James tells us that works are linked to our faith, doesn't he? James 2, verses 14 to 17. Lastly, make the most of spiritual opportunities. God determines who will be saved. We are simply called to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 8. Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. We serve a mighty God who does all things well. Only he can bring the dead to life. So let us offer a continuous thanksgiving and praise to him for his unspeakable gift. Amen.